Welcome to Lump In Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we dove deep into an historic film, discussed the Green New Deal, and learned about the history of the public school tournament. All this plus Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lump in Week in Review for June 7, 2019. I-94 spoke with Kip Stratton, the author of The Wild Bunch, a new book examining Sam Peckinpah's famous film. Stratton discussed the technical achievements behind this masterwork, Peckinpah's attempt to bring Mexican cinema to America, and why the movie changed how we see the Western genre. This clip contains an excerpt from Stratton's work, read by Shanna Van Bolt. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Today we are joined by the author of The Wild Bunch. It is a new book out from Bloomsbury, W.K. Stratton. He goes by Kip. Kip, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. We really, really appreciate it. So this is a new book. It is a nonfiction book. It is about the making of the film The Wild Bunch, if you're not familiar with that film. Uh, it's coming up on, is it 50 years old? It, it's been out for quite a while. 60, 60 years, right? 60 no, years. no, 50 years old this month. 50 oh, years okay. old this month, wow. In, in, uh, in June 1969. Wow. Okay. So it's it's aging up there with us. Uh, it's it's getting up there. <laughs> Sam Peckinpah, the director. It's a it's a well known Western film, and uh, obviously you've devoted a lot of work uh, and other nonfiction stories to to sports. You had a career at Sports Illustrated, if I remember. Is that correct, Kip? Well, I, I was a freelancer, but yes, I did. That was my first magazine work. Was uh, doing some pieces for Sports Illustrated. Okay, and that was back in the eighties and nineties, wasn't it? Back in the 80s into the early 90s, yes. Okay, yeah, because I worked over at Inside Sports. I remember your byline over there. So. Oh, so I was one of the hated ones, I guess. <laughs> well, I, we didn't hate you. We envied you. Trust me. If you saw the offices of Inside Sports here in Evanston, Illinois, you would have known that we had a lot to be envious about. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but moving on from that, you, you've had a long career writing nonfiction and particularly about uh, action, uh, looking at your, your biography here. But what attracted you, other than your, your obvious love for the film, what attracted you to this story? in particular to write this book about it? Well, you know, there there had been, uh, I think, something like three dozen books published about Sam Peckinpah before I started this project. And, uh, you know, I, I was very much taken by his art and his filmmaking. And I just had a gut feeling that sometimes you get when you've been in journalism and, and so forth that there was still a story to be told about Sam Peckinpah and, and his work that hadn't been told. So I was just kicking this around thinking, what could that be? And then it suddenly occurred on to me that we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of what I believe, and I think most people would agree with me, is his, his greatest film, uh, The Wild Bunch. And it, it was a monumentally important film in, on a number of levels, not the least of which the uh, changes it it caused in making American films. Everything changed after the Wild Bunch. So I, uh, I I started poking around, and I realized the story of the making of it hadn't been told in full, particularly um, the the contributions of the initial screenwriter, Waylon Green, who, who did very important work in, in creating this story. And then I, I realized that... Uh, most of the Mexicans and Mexican-Americans who had worked on this film and made major contributions to it had never been interviewed by anyone about this, this movie. So I started, uh, started doing that. 
And I realized there was a story that hadn't been told yet in full. So that that's really how the book took off is from that realization. We t- you talk about uh, some parallels to to Vietnam and, and people that are kind of stuck in the past with, with the theme of the movie. Obviously, you know, these guys were uh, times were changing and, and I couldn't help but think as as I was reading the book, there's a lot of parallels not only to Vietnam but what we're going through in America right now. Oh, I totally totally agree. Uh, the years it was filmed in 1968. Now that was the uh, uh, you know a year when the the Vietnam War and America's involvement was really kind of at a climax. That was the year of major political assassinations, Martin Luther King. Uh, Robert Kennedy. It was the year of the riots in Chicago around the Democratic National Convention. Plus, worldwide, there it was the the year of the student uprisings in uh, in Paris, and that was the year that the Soviets involved and in, in, invaded Czechoslovakia to put down uh, a freedom movement there. And it was also a year when in Mexico, which was hosting the Olympics. Uh, the president of Mexico didn't want Mexico to be embarrassed by political dissent during the, the Olympics. So there were about 200 people who simply disappeared from the country and have never been heard of since. Um, a political activist that that happened just in Mexico. So there was 1968 was really a year of, of significant turmoil. And, uh, you know, the author, Joan Didion. I went back to a William Butler Yeats poem and picked out the line, the sinner cannot hold. And, you know, this beast slouching toward Bethlehem, it kind of seemed that way in America at the time. 1969 wasn't, you know, much better. We had Altamont, we had uh, the Manson killings and, and that sort of thing. So it was really a very violent time in America history and one in which the old order didn't seem like it was going to last. And certainly, as you say, here we are in the uh, the late 20 teens, and it's it has kind of a similar feel to it as well. Uh, it's it seems like maybe the center can't hold here uh, right now. So uh, I, I think you're you're absolutely right in that observation that we can look at what went on in the the wild bunch and see some kind of allegorical things that that affect our times right now. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I do want to go back to the situation in Mexico, but to expand on that point, you know, it's interesting. We have a a real uh, issue in America right now with uh, mass killings, obviously another in Virginia Beach this weekend as we, as we tape this show. Um, during the 1960s, as most people are aware, the Vietnam War was going on, and the body counts in that were, were tremendous. Uh, not necessarily unprecedented, but certainly the first televised war where uh, these body counts were being uh, distributed nationwide to a very shocked America. We, of course, are in a situation of perpetual war. We've been at war in the Middle East for a, a long time uh, without people necessarily fully realizing our, our, the depths of our involvement. Jeremy, of course, is a, is a former uh, Army gunner. He served in – it was the first uh, Gulf War effort, if I'm correct um, – the parallels are very interesting, and I wonder, and, and the reason I'm kind of elucidating on this is because I'm wondering if in today's age a, a story such as The Wild Bunch could be shot. We, we are in a golden age of television. I would say we're not so much in a golden age of cinema, and this seems like such an iconoclastic film uh, subverting a genre at the time that I'm not necessarily sure uh, a major studio would take a chance on it. 
Well, you know, actually, Warner Brothers is doing a remake of The Wild Bunch. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and you're, you're, are you ready for this? Mel Gibson is directing, writing, and starring in it. Oh, no. It should go into production next year. And uh, I, so. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by this news. <laughs> but uh, <sighs> Warner Brothers is going ahead with it. It, it certainly uh, cannot be. Uh, what the wild bunch was uh, it uh, just simply for the talent that was involved with the wild bunch and, and a number of other reasons. I, uh, I don't think that it, it is the time to do a remake of the wild bunch. I think that, you know, the, the key thing you, you talk about uh, mass shootings, uh, Sam Peckinpah, who was a troubled man as, as most people who know a little bit about him, are well aware, uh, who was not without his own internal violence, but he was also uh, appalled by the violence he saw in America and in the world. He had come in at the end of World War II into China while the, the revolution was going on between the supporters of Mao and supporters of Chiang Kai-shek as a U.S. Marine observer. And he saw some really terrible things like, like beatings and... Uh, are we okay? okay? Everything's great. Okay. Uh, he saw like beheadings in public squares and and prisoners tortured. Um, just just horrible things, including prisoners who were Maoist uh, prisoners who were dragged behind cars as a form of torture, which then, you know, is a very important sequence in the Wild Bunch later on. Uh but he was appalled, and he was appalled by the political assassinations and the general violence in the United States in the late 1960s. So he went on the record as saying that he wanted to show violence in a realistic sort of way, with real blood and real anguish and real death is dirty. And he, he set out to do that in The Wild Bunch, and he would say later in a BBC interview, that he was hoping that if people saw this on the screen, they would go through this kind of cathartic sort of thing and then maybe move forward in life saying, this is unacceptable. We can't do this anymore. And I, uh, and that's, that's, you, you, that I can understand that read very well when I watch The Wild Bunch now. I think with a remake with somebody like uh, Mel Gibson making the picture, that there will be a lot of violence in it, but it'll be violence without a, an intent behind it. You know, it's not any kind of statement of saying, we can't do this anymore, we have to stop. Now, Peckinpah, there was a real irony there. He realized five years later when he did this interview that he'd failed in what he was attempting to do. And he'd sort of inadvertently created a kind of pornography of violence that moved into American movies in the 1970s. Um, he, it's, uh, it's always interesting to me about uh, America and censorship. Americans were so squeamish about showing anything sexual in movies. Uh, and to a certain extent, that's still true. But it was fine in the 1970s to show a lot of blood, a lot of really bad things. So the, the, you had the whole splatter film thing come along. And, and uh, a lot of that goes back to the wild bunch because of the barriers peck and paw broke down with the intent of accomplishing something completely different so i i have a feeling that the 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 next wild bunch that will come along will just 
continue kind of in that tradition of pornography of violence that's been in movies ever since. It wasn't simple. Peckinpah moved about his Malibu digs as a broken man. He was still married to Begonia Palacios, and she became alarmed as she witnessed his deepening despair. I'll never get to make another film, he said. They're never going to let me direct again. Neither Bego nor Sam could know that events were occurring in New York, Burbank, and elsewhere that would prove Peckinpah wrong. Four months after Peckinpah was fired off via rides, Warner Brothers released Bonnie and Clyde, an Arthur Penn film starring Hollywood fashion plates Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Penn crafted a superb criminal fantasy about Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, who in real life were ignorant, small, ugly, and only marginally successful outlaws. Penn made them young and beautiful on screen, and though the picture was set in the 1930s, they seemed emblematic of the disaffected youth of the 1960s. They were violent. Penn made pioneering use of slow motion to tell their story in film, but it was the savage gun battles that created the most controversy. Blood flowed in Bonnie and Clyde, much more so than in any mainstream American movie before it, thanks to Penn's sophisticated use of blood squibs. Squibs were miniature explosive devices that originated in the coal mining industry. They resembled nothing so much as tiny sticks of dynamite and were discharged electrically by wires running under clothing. By the mid-1950s, filmmakers began experimenting with them as a way to simulate a bullet striking a human being. Prior to squibs, the best that could be done was to use a series of film edits to the film to show a gunshot followed by a shot of an actor with blood smeared on his wardrobe. By taping a wired squib to an actor's body with a small container, condoms were used early on, of stage blood adhered to it, all of it hidden under a shirt, a special effects person could trip the switch to discharge the explosive, producing a bullet hole-like tear in the shirt and breaking the container to cause an immediate flow of blood. Bonnie and Clyde rattled the cage across America with many mainstream reviewers condemning it for its violence and preachers damning it from church pulpits. It became a financial success with its stick-it-to-the-establishment message of rebellious love. Hollywood took note. A movie that pushed the limits in sex and violence could put baby boomer asses in cinema seats. It kicked open the door for directors such as Peckinpah to explore risque topics in an adult, artful way. A film such as Bonnie and Clyde was too much for an old-time mogul such as Jack Warner who demanded to know what the hell he'd just seen when the movie was previewed for him. Beatty, who produced Bonnie and Clyde in addition to starring in it, was fast on his feet. He explained the film was an homage to the great Warner Brothers gangster films of the 1930s. Warner nodded, then said, What the is an homage? He didn't need to figure it out. He wouldn't be in charge of the studio that bore his name for much longer.
Kiefer Dunn spoke with Billy Fleming about design and the Green New Deal. Fleming, a former staffer in the Obama White House and a founder of Indivisible, discussed the realities of climate change and what he sees as the fruitlessness of engaging with the other side. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. Well, uh, without further ado, uh, we have Billy on the line. Billy, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the introduction. Billy, Billy you are the uh, Ian L. McHarg uh, Center for Urbanism and Ecology Director. Uh, and you, you recently wrote an article in Places Journal uh, called Designing a Green New Deal. Um, or wait, sorry, it's, what is it? It's, desi- yeah, Design and the Green New Deal. Um which was totally fantastic. I mean, I, I think that um, this, <laughs> I read it and I was like, <laughs> I got to get this guy in, on the show um, because I, 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 what, I, what I really appreciated about the piece um, was, was how you kind of start by talking about the kind of gap between our agency and position as designers and the kind of uh, various design disciplines um, uh, you know, sense of disciplinary self-importance. Those things are sort of very, very far apart. But here, a lot of designers tell it they're they're not at all. Um, and I and I'm, I and I really think that kind of addressing the kind of structural issues um, is 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 absolutely vital. So it was really really cool to see that kind of conversation being put front and center. Um, so uh, I, you know, I like I, I always tell my guests in advance of the show. I always start off with like a big unfair question, and then, and then we take the conversation from there. Um, and 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 this is a, a big and simple question. Like you know, there's lots of talk about the Green New Deal in the media, but maybe a lot of folks are not entirely familiar with like what it actually is. So like, give us what what is the Green New Deal? What is the actual kind of status of this? I mean, it, it's out there in the zeitgeist, but what, how, how, how is it maybe beginning to meet the ground or how are folks thinking about it? Who are the players? That's the big unfair question. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that that's unfair. <laughs> I think that's the question everybody kind of gets at first with the Green New yeah. Deal because uh, it is relatively new for a lot of people. And I, I don't know that the information about it is as widespread as we would all like it to be. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think the Green New Deal, you know, is leaning really heavily, obviously, on its precedent, the New Deal which I think tells us a lot about kind of where the Green New Deal is right now. It's not a one-off piece of legislation that we're sort of waiting for, you know, the stars to align in Congress and the White House to pass. Um, The New Deal itself sort of describes an improvisational, experimental period of policymaking in the 1930s and 40s um, under, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, And it was really one of the first times that government sort of took a leading role as sort of an experimenter, right? So it was both funding and doing the work of policy innovation. Um, Much of that dealt with public works and built environment and design questions. Um, And you could look at the sort of alphabet agencies at that time, many of which were populated by designers, architects, landscape architects, and planners, um, some of which, you know, existed for the duration of FDR's presidency, some of which sort of began and then ended very quickly and then perhaps came about again in different forms during latter parts of his administration or afterwards, and some of which would you know continue today. Yeah. Um, the TDA is a legacy of, of FDR that we still are sort of dealing with in different ways today. Um, and so the Green New Deal, you know, even though there is a physical like piece of paper, a, a non-binding resolution in the House um, that has, you know, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez uh, and many others as sponsors of, um, 
it's really a set of goals and ideas and frameworks for what we might imagine as a new generation of policymaking mm -hmm. that is scaled and scoped appropriately to the challenge of climate change and all the myriad things that that intersects with that are now before us. Um, so you could imagine this non-binding resolution as sort of a statement of goals and ambitions that we might imagine as animating the next 10, 12, 14, 20 years of policymaking. Yeah. Uh, and if you think about, you know, one of the things I think about a lot these days is um, partially because we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of uh, Ian McCarg's book, Design with Nature, and one of my jobs, because I run a center that bears his name, is to do a lot of the, <laughs> the sort of commemorating uh, around that anniversary. Um, but I think about all the, the activism and the movement building of the 1960s, um, of which McCarg's book was, you know, very firmly a part of that milieu, mm. um, and the huge wave of environmental legislation that unleashed in what's now called the environmental decade of the 70s. Yeah. Um, and we, of course, didn't get everything right in that decade. And we got many things wrong, like we did during the New Deal. Um, but it's about, you know, creating space and opening up a window through which big things can happen and then doing whatever you can to sort of guard against the inevitable backlash to it. So um, that's a really long answer, I think, to your, like, whatever you want to call it, your, your unfair first yeah. question. Yeah, well, and I, and I think that that framing, you know, I think um, what what's novel about it that might not be immediately obvious to people is the kind of insistence that, like, okay, it's, it's kind of okay that this is opening up a broad, like, uh, a, a window, as you said, like it's kind of like just it's creating like a kind of a, a, a remit and like a, a a kind of call, an open call, like uh, in 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 and it's not common in this day and age. I feel for like legislation to really do that. I mean, a lot of uh, you know the, the sort of so-called progressives out there right now really kind of insist on on very like, well, you got to have all of your you know te technocratic stuff figured out in advance, and like you know, and and I and I and I think that th that that kind of idea is is one of the ways in which actually progressive legislation kind of gets rolled back. So I'm 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 curious if you could I mean like and you you talk a lot about the kind of technocracy in in this piece um, and I think it's something that in this show we we also we often cover with a great deal of skepticism as well. So I'm 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 kind of curious if you if you could kind of talk about that and its and its relationship to to this. Yeah, I mean, I think sort of embedded in that is is one of the arguments I make kind of throughout the piece, right, that, and you, you sort of hinted at this at the, the introduction, that designers, you know, at least contemporaneously have a tendency to frame ourselves and our work as like agents of change. Mm -hmm. um, and I just fundamentally disagree with that framing, right? I think designers have been and probably will always be instruments of yeah. power, Um and at times when the state is really strong and government views itself uh, as sort of an activist force or an experimental force or an innovative force, um, it means that design is an instrument for that innovation and experimentation. And when government is winnowed down to like its corpse, as it has been under neoliberalism, and we've sort of cut as much as we can possibly cut from the public sector and privatized everything we can privatize, then design becomes an instrument of capital in the private sector. And that's right. where we find ourselves now. Um, and I go back to, I don't, I don't know if you read Corey Robin at all, um, who's a really interesting political theorist. Um, he's done a podcast with Chris Hayes on um, the connection between Edmund Burke and Donald Trump and the sort of linearity of conservative thought from then to now um, that I think a lot about in this writing and that we've sort of exhausted 
you know, the conservative project, partially because conservatives have won everything. Um, <laughs> there, there, there isn't a conservative project now. The project for them is corporate tax cuts. Right. And they can barely do that. Right. They needed 50 plus one uh, in the Senate to pass that. Um, and beyond that, there are no ideas because they've won all of the fights for the last 40 plus years since Reagan. Right. Um, and this is part of what we're, we're sort of finding. This is the moment we're finding ourselves in as designers, right, is that we've reached the limits of what we can credibly claim to be able to do through corporate design practice and client-led or private sector-led design and real estate development. Yeah. Um, that we, we sort of know what those results will be. We haven't changed our rhetoric around it much, uh, at least on the, on the practitioner side. Um, but we kind of know like what we can do with that tool. And we know that it's not enough and we know that we'll never, you know, be able to do anything at the scale at which it needs to happen in that model of practice. And so, I mean, I think the thing that that's really, it's really the thing about this piece that resonated with other people and that has really given me a lot of hope that maybe I didn't have before I wrote it. Um, <laughs> it's how, it's just how many people I think sort of felt the same way. I mean, yeah. the response to this has really been overwhelming and particularly among younger designers who I think have come up um, in a different world than many of our, our faculty mates who trained us and many of our um, office mates who we'll work with um, and have seen and lived the limits of neoliberalism in a way that they have not. And we also have not sunk, you know, tons of, tons of money and many, many years of our life into investing in that system in a way that they have. And I'll, I'll just go back like one more time to the sort of activism of the 60s and the space created in the 70s for big national scale action again, but, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon young designers to lead all of this. Yeah. And I don't mean that in that we don't have anything to learn from the folks who came before us because we obviously have much to learn from them. Um, but we're the experience of being of, of downward mobility um, and all the different things that neoliberalism has created for us, some of which intersect with design and many of which do not. Um, we've lived through, we know the limits of, um, and we're going to have to find ways and other modes of practice that operate outside of them. What's this? I'm going to teach you how the recorder works, Kyle. No, it looks like I got the aptitude for such technologically advanced learning. Jamie, want another one? Yeah, Eric, thanks. Kyle? Nah, I'm good. You don't look good. His producer quit on him. No, I mean, he looks like he's had a few, but he hasn't ordered anything from me today. No, no, I ain't done what you think I done. What are you talking about? Sometimes he BYOBs. You got anything to hand over? I've been coming here since before the Mashuski tribe called this place their own, mind you. Ah, whatever, Kyle. Listen, Kyle, I know you miss John, but you need to focus on size matters. Yeah, more like nothing matters. Stop it. I know someone who would love to... Here you go, Jamie. Thanks, Eric. Listen, I, I know it. someone I who would love to help out, but you need to be a little more Hold independent. On. Before you throw out the ultimatum, gotta do something while old banana brain ain't looking. Yeah. What? Did you just take a swig out of a medicine bottle? Yeah, don't say nothing to nobody. I got my lumpin' bubbles in here. Lumpin' bubbles? Yeah, lump. Are you not familiar with the cannon? Lumpin' Bubbles, my very own concoction, as heard on Size Matters Episode 3. Go back and listen to it. It smells like dish soap. That mostly is. It doubles as bubble fluid for children and a discreet adult drink. You are drunk, aren't you? Oh, good question, Jamie. He's actually entered an altered state of emotional consciousness. And I told him if he ever brings a hooch in here again, I would ban him for life. Whose life? 
You ain't seen nothing. I've been standing right over this the whole time. Yeah, way to be a creep. <sighs> Pal doesn't want to learn how to use the portable. He's right. I don't. You're upset about John, aren't you? Yeah, I was. Dude, move on, man. Get out there and learn how this stupid little recorder works and record stuff. I don't know. I do. I'm going to do the dumbest thing since opening my own radio station. I'm going to let you pick the next producer for Size Matters. Whoa, 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 Ed, no, that's that's a little too much control here. No, it isn't. It's Kyle's turn to prove himself. That's right, I can do it. (laughs) He just burped up a bubble, look. Sorry, I just... Oh, no, don't pop the bubble. Code 74. Uh, Code 74. This is not a drill, oh, people. So no sorry. one. Pop. Ed, I'm so the sorry. bubble. Continue no. to the exit. Just please Turn exit the bar. Take Continue care to of the exit. I got it. Pop I got it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. that stuff? My nostrils are burning. What did I say? Just move. Get out of Get out of my way. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump's team apparently committed perjury at the Supreme Court, Trump insults London and calls the Duchess of Sussex nasty, the White House covers up the USS John McCain, Trump stuns Republicans with tariffs on Mexico, and Trump finally says what we all knew, Russia helped get him elected. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 861, May 30th. A bombshell lawsuit filed by the ACLU alleges that Trump deliberately concealed evidence about the decision to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The suit, which claims administration officials perjured themselves in a case currently before the Supreme Court, revealed that their plan actually started with a little-known Republican operative who died last summer. Information found on hard drives belonging to the late Thomas Heffler show extensive research for Trump that demonstrated adding that citizenship question, quote, would clearly be a disadvantage to the Democrats and advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites in redistricting. Heffler also wrote the false justification for adding that question, claiming it was intended to improve enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. A federal judge quickly moved to halt the suit, calling for hearings and testimony this next week. Trump admitted for the first time that Russia helped, quote, me to get elected. He then quickly tried to walk that statement back. Russia tried to aid Trump's campaign with a sophisticated cyber warfare operation. Special counsel Robert Mueller noted that Trump's campaign welcomed the help and benefited from it. Trump then again attacked Mueller, claiming he was, quote, totally conflicted and a true never-Trumper. Trump also claimed that if the former special counsel had any evidence, he would have bought charges. Trump insisted that Mueller's comments yesterday essentially said, you're innocent, there was no crime, there was no charge, because he had no information. This is demonstrably false. Mueller did present evidence, and he did not bring charges due to a long-standing Justice Department practice. Mueller also apparently investigated getting a secret indictment against Trump. In a related story, the so-called Five Eyes partners have expressed concerns over William Barr's politically charged Justice Department review of how the Russian investigation began. Those nations, which include the United Kingdom and Australia, are concerned that Barr could reveal intelligence shared with the United States, damaging their relationships with foreign partners. An analyst shows the vast majority of money from Trump's farm bailout is going to giant factory farms. Trump committed $16 billion to farms in the wake of his tariffs against China to soften the blow with a crucial constituency. However, farms with annual revenues of several million dollars are likely to see the most of that bailout. Those farms already benefit from federal crop support programs. Small mom-and-pop farms are unlikely to see any money. Day 162, May 31st. 
Trump threatened to impose a 5% tariff on all Mexican goods entering the United States unless they stop, quote, all illegal migrants coming through Mexico. Trump claimed he was acting under the powers granted to him by the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which gives the president broad power to take action to address any, quote, unusual or extraordinary threat. Trump's threat was reportedly spearheaded by White House advisor Stephen Miller, who accompanied him on a trip to Japan. Trump returned from that trip riled up about the surge in border crossings due to Miller and comments made by conservative talk show host Mark Levin. Trump's plan was then hurried out the door to appease the president. His own aides called it flying blind. That plan was opposed by Trump's own Treasury Secretary and top trade advisor. The move immediately drew bipartisan criticism as Trump's allies warned the move was actually illegal. Imposing tariffs on all Mexican imports is contrary to NAFTA and Trump's mooted replacement, the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Senate Finance Chairman Republican Chuck Grassley called the move a misuse of presidential tariff authority and adding that it would seriously jeopardize passage of the USMCA. The Chamber of Commerce and other business groups prepared to sue Trump to stop the tariffs. The tariffs would be a $17 billion tax increase on Americans. Meanwhile, Sarah Huckabee Sanders tried to blame Congress, saying, quote, if they were stepping up and doing more, the president wouldn't have to continue to look for ways to stop this problem on his own. The Congressional Budget Office released a study that showed Trump's tax cuts have had a relatively small, if any, first-year effect on the economy, and they're failing to pay for themselves. Trump claimed the cuts would add rocket fuel to the U.S. economy. Ordinary workers, however, continue to see wage stagnation. And the Department of Energy referred to fossil fuel as, quote, molecules of U.S. freedom in a press release touting the exports of natural gas. Initially thought to be a joke, Energy Secretary Rick Perry later confirmed the, quote, rebranding of natural gas, comparing the product to American efforts during D-Day. Date 163, June 1st. William Barr continued to carry water for the Trump administration in an interview with CBS News in which he trashed the Mueller report. Essentially characterizing Mueller as derelict, Barr then claimed Mueller's team of lawyers were inept. Barr dismissed Mueller's conclusion, saying he and Rod Rosenstein did not agree with a lot of the legal analysis in the Mueller report. Barr then said he applied what he considered to be, quote, the right law, though he confusingly said he didn't rely on that when pronouncing Mueller's evidence deficient on the 11 instances of potential obstruction. However, in Barr's written testimony before the Senate, he wrote that, quote, we accepted the special counsel's legal framework for purposes of our analysis and evaluated the evidence as presented by the special counsel in reaching our conclusion. Barr then attacked the FBI team doing the investigating, saying, quote, republics have fallen because of Praetorian Guard mentality where government officials get very arrogant. They identify with the national interest as their own political preferences, and they feel that anyone who has a different opinion, you know, is somehow an enemy of the state. Things are just not jiving. Barr then went on to claim Mueller's report shows, quote, no evidence of a conspiracy and this whole idea that Trump was in cahoots with the Russians is bogus. The White House moved the warship USS John McCain out of sight during Trump's visit to Japan. The White House asked to move the destroyer while Trump was in the area. A tarp was also hung over McCain's name and sailors from the ship who wear McCain's name on their hats and uniforms were prevented from visiting the USS Wasp where Trump was. Senior officials at the White House confirmed the move was made to keep Trump from being upset. When senior Navy officials grasped what was happening, they directed Navy personnel who were present to stop it. Also, several service members aboard the Wasp wore, quote, make air crew great again patches. They're being investigated. News of the move stunned the Pentagon. Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan said he did not know about the White House request. Trump claimed he was not informed, but then went on to attack the late McCain, saying, quote, I was not a big fan of John McCain in any shape or form. Now, somebody did it because they thought I didn't like him, okay? And they were well-meaning. Date 
864, June 2nd, Trump called the Duchess of Sussex, the American-born Meghan Markle, nasty in an interview with the Sun tabloid. During the campaign, Markle had called Trump misogynistic and divisive. In an audio recording released by the Sun, Trump clearly said, quote, I didn't know that she was nasty in response to a question. Trump then tried to deny those remarks, tweeting, quote, I never called Meghan Markle nasty, made up by the fake news media, and they got caught cold. The Sun subsequently released the audio tape of Trump calling Markle nasty. The Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General found dangerous overcrowding and unsanitary conditions at a Border Patrol processing facility. The El Paso Del Norte Processing Center currently is holding between 750 and 900 detainees. It has a maximum capacity of 125 migrants. Photos leaked to The Guardian showed detainees standing on toilets in an attempt to get fresh air. Federal prosecutors subpoenaed Trump's Mar-a-Lago for records related to Republican Party donor Lindy Cindy Yang. Yang is involved in a prostitution investigation and is alleged to have sold access to Trump and his associates at Mar-a-Lago events to Chinese nationals. Yang's former massage parlor was also raided in a bust involving Trump donor and Patriots owner Robert Kraft. 865, June 3rd. Even before Trump's plane landed in London for a state visit, he had become ensnared in petty feuds. Trump said the mayor of London was, quote, a stone-cold loser for being foolishly nasty to him. Sadiq Khan wrote in an op-ed that Trump is one of the most egregious examples of a growing global threat. Khan called for Trump's state visit to be called off. Trump also claimed the UK should just walk away from Brexit talks. Trump said the UK should just not pay the $50 billion it owes in the Brexit deal, adding he wouldn't pay it because it's a tremendous number. He then urged the UK to leave the EU immediately so it could do a tremendous deal with the US. Trump urged Prime Minister Theresa May to accept lower standard agricultural imports from the US and is reportedly insisting the UK must open up their national health service to American privatization. Trump called for a boycott of AT&T in order to force, quote, big changes at CNN. Trump tweeted that AT&T do something about CNN because the network is the primary source of news available from the U.S. and is so negative and unfair. A key witness in the Mueller investigation has been arrested for child pornography. George Nader operated as a liaison between Trump supporters, the Middle East, and Russia, helping to arrange an infamous Seychelles meeting between Eric Prince and a Russian official close to Putin in January of 2017. The New York Times reports that Mitch McConnell's wife, the Transportation Secretary, Elaine Chao, has repeatedly used her connections and celebrity status in China to boost the profile of her family's shipping company, Foremost Group. The group, which handles shipping in China, has given McConnell millions of dollars in gifts. And a new State Department policy would require visa applicants to submit information about any social media accounts used in the past five years. The State Department defended the move, claiming it was part of enhanced screening. 866, June 4th. The owners of a former Trump Panama hotel have accused the Trump Organization of evading taxes. A lawsuit filed in Manhattan claims the Trump family cheated a foreign government and that the Trump Organization made fraudulent and false claims to the Panamanian tax authorities in order to cover up its unlawful activities. The House passed a $19.1 billion disaster aid package that followed Republicans blocking it on three separate occasions. The Senate has already passed the bill. Trump is expected to sign it. Paul Manafort has been sent to Rikers Island and will be held in isolation while facing state fraud charges. Manafort is serving a seven-and-a-half-year federal prison sentence. He's being held in isolation for his own safety. Trump turned down a request from Jeremy Corbyn to meet. Corbyn is the opposition leader in England. He is also a possible prime minister with a general election looking likely. Trump said he did not know Corbyn, but said he seemed, quote, like somewhat of a negative force. He wanted to meet today or tomorrow, and I decided I would not do that. I really don't like critics as much as I like and respect someone who can get things done. 
Corbyn joined a protest against Trump's state visit and declined to attend a dinner hosted by the Queen. The White House told former communications director Hope Hicks to refuse to turn over documents to the House Judiciary Committee in response to a subpoena. Hicks, who is now a private citizen, is one of several former members of Trump's inner circle to be subpoenaed by the House. Hicks, however, defied the White House and made documents available to that committee. And the EPA blamed the media for public's concerns about climate change. EPA head Andrew Wheeler argued the press is, quote, doing a disservice to the public and needs to fix the perception that the environment is getting worse. In fact, the Earth's carbon dioxide levels are at a record high. Ocean levels are rising due to melting ice glaciers. Millions of people worldwide have been affected by extreme weather patterns caused by global warming. And a new report by the Breakthrough National Center for Climate Restoration warns that human civilization could collapse by 2050 if climate change isn't stopped. 867, June 5th. Republican senators warned Trump they're prepared to block his effort to impose tariffs on Mexican imports and that they have the support to override a veto. Earlier in the day, Trump insisted he would slap tariffs on the U.S. biggest trading partner next week, claiming Republican attempts to stop him would be foolish. Trump canceled English classes, rec programs, and legal aid for unaccompanied minors staying in detention centers nationwide, claiming the influx of the southern borders created budget problems. The Office of Refugee Resettlement has become discontinuing the funding for activities, claiming it will run out of money in late June. Border Patrol agents are boarding buses and trains across the north with increasing frequency to ask passengers about their citizenship status. Those searches can happen as often as three times per day at some northern bus stations. The stations are often nowhere near the U.S. border. The House passed the Dream and Promise Act of 2019, which would give a pathway to millions of young undocumented citizens' citizenship. The Senate is unlikely to consider it under Mitch McConnell. Trump has also threatened to veto it. A study shows that Russia's infamous troll farm conducted a campaign on Twitter before the 2016 election that was larger, more coordinated, and more effective than previously known. The new study from security firm Symantec says the Internet Research Agency may not only have had more sway, reaching large numbers of real users than previously thought, they might also have generated income for some of the phony accounts. Trump spent an hour and a half with climate activist Prince Charles in England. The prince did most of the talking, while Trump insisted the U.S. was clean and blamed other nations for climate change. Well, the U.S. right now is among the cleanest climates there based on all statistics, and it's getting even better because I agree with that we want the best water, the cleanest water. It's crystal clean, has to be crystal clean water. China, India, Russia, many other nations, they have not very good air, not very good water, and the sense of pollution, if you go to certain cities, you can't even breathe, and now that the air is going up, they don't do the responsibility. The U.S. has slipped into third place when it comes to the world's most competitive economies. Analysts say the effects of shifting supply chains away from China toward Mexico and other areas is stifling American innovation. And Trump alleged the protesters in London who greeted his trip didn't exist. I said, where are the protests? I don't see any protests. I did see a small protest today when it came very small, so a lot of it is fake news, I hate to say. Trump then told TV host Piers Morgan that some of them were, quote, protesting in his favor. An aide told the BBC they spent a lot of time pulling the wool over Trump's eyes. These are the Trump Diaries. The Klonskis spoke with Russ Bradbird and Hoop Dreams baller Sean Harrington about the legacy of the seminal Chicago documentary. Harrington spoke about his struggle, his work in restorative justice, and how the Chicago Public School Championships really came about. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. We're sitting here with uh, Russ Bradbird, author, coach, uh, and Sean Harrington, uh, uh, superhero to me, and uh, uh, former Hoop Dreams basketball 
player. We're we're a, a a sports city, and I think what other ways that we can use to bring our city together? I mean, just think about the times when our teams win, how it unifies as 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 segregated as this city is. Sports is the one thing that brings this city together. And yeah, and and you're not just about sports. You're about uh, you bring together the sports side. Uh, the issue of uh, violence. Yes. In this, you've been doing a lot of work with uh, young people over there at Marshall now, right? Uh, yes. Yes. Well, tell well, us about getting, that. What are you well, doing? Well, uh, getting getting. Um, I'm in the process of getting getting the things worked out for me to get back into the building. I did start, and then we had some comp. I had some complications where I had to step away from the position, but um, uh, it was a restorative uh, restorative justice coordinator position, which is basically conflict resolution. Um, that I was working when I when I was back there. Like I said, I'm getting um, the paperwork and things um, done now, so I can get back in the building. But basically, conflict resolution and um, and what is that? How did it? T- how did it? How did you do it at Marshall? My, well, uh, it was basically a dean, uh, a duty of one of the deans, and basically, hopefully, get to the kids before conflicts become physical. Uh, when they may have a, a verbal disagreement or some or somehow, just see if we can get the kids to come to. A common ground where they can basically agree to disagree, but hopefully to quell the situation before it comes physical. And a lot of the times, you get to the uh, the root of the problem. It's, it falls back to something that started on social media. Yeah. Well, let's take Mike's idea for a second. Say, say you were sitting in the, up in the fifth floor of City Hall with the mayor. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of call, one of the things we saw like over Memorial Day weekend was mm-hmm. this idea of uh, flooding the neighborhoods with uh, with police and. Uh, as a way to prevent uh, uh, violence, but but you're sitting up there in the fifth floor and in, uh, in the mayor's office talking to her about about violence in the city and gun violence in particular. What what would you advise her as a way of uh, uh, dealing with this problem? Uh, that if I had to answer, I would I, w- I would go I would go shout it out on every single corner in the city of Chicago if I had to answer that. But um, uh, one thing I do is, is I, I still work with our youth. And not that I give up on the adults or the teenager, but a lot of stuff I do work with the youth, whereas if we can get a good um, support system and, and get the kids to know the importance of education. A lot of things I do, even though it revolves around sports, revolves around being a student athlete, because that's what I know. Uh, being, being a student athlete, using, using, uh, using academics to broaden their horizons. I mean, sports was a privilege. I got to, playing sports in college was a privilege, but while pursuing my education is what broadened my horizons and working in the inner city and with a lot of those kids, knowing the kids whose family really don't have those means uh, for the kids to go to colleges or go out and see things outside their neighborhoods, I can think I would be a help, um, a hands-on guy in the inner city uh, uh, with the kids uh, to help them to help them see the importance of education. Um, and like I say, how just pursuing the education can broaden your horizons and take you around the world and one thing that I did that I have found out over the last few years that I didn't know because I was so caught up in being an athlete is um, a kid can you can receive more money in an academic scholarship than you can in an athletic scholarship so as much as I talk about athletic scholarships I preach the importance of academics also and okay uh, Madam Mayor I know you're listening uh, so <laughs> uh, take that under advisement please and um you know, the, uh, Fred mentioned uh, uh, the mayor. You know, I was, I was kind of critical of the mayor uh, for uh, over Memorial Day weekend for what she called flooding the zone, which is kind of a basketball or football oh, yeah. term, right? Yeah. And uh, 
this metaphor I thought wasn't very useful in terms of preventing uh, violence because uh, I don't believe that, that big police presence alone in the community is the answer to preventing violence. Police come in kind of after the fact, right. you know, after the violence has taken place. Uh, but uh, but then uh, she, she, she talked a lot about uh, more holistic kind of approaches, uh, Russ, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Involving community organizations. She talked about uh, cr crimes of poverty and, and about uh, having to take care of, a, of a, you know, a family situation, jobs, uh, things like that as a, as a long-term solution. There are no quick, quick solutions, as I guess Sean was pointing out. You know, it's not like there's a magic uh, weapon. Right. So, uh, uh, Russ, uh, you got you got some ideas about this? Well, just the idea, I mean, the thing that Sean and I talk about all the time is that sport has always been at the forefront of, of social change and racial progress in America. If you think of uh, Jackie Robinson desegregated Major League Baseball in the modern era in 1947, the United States military was segregated at that time. Like, we fought Hitler with segregated troops. It's a funny thing to think about. So it was two years later that the military, or, or the greatest voice for peace in American history was Martin Luther King. He came out against the Vietnam War a year after Muhammad Ali did, the, you know, the best-known athlete in the world. And so, and it's happened in gender equity uh, issues and that kind of thing. It's always been, and I, you know, I used to work at Texas, was Texas Western at the University of Texas, El Paso. And when they won the historic championship in 1966, I was just seven, Fred. Don't look at me. I'm not that old. But but when they won the championship in 1966 with the first all-black team to win it, there would never been a black professor at this at the school. Yeah. It wasn't until the next year. And so it's always been— That's UTEP now, right? Yeah, UTEP, is, and, and so which has had a long Chicago connection as well. But but the, the I, I like the idea of—for uh, me, as a former sports guy— I do think there's a, there's a certain power of sports, and it, 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 as much as it possibly can, it levels the playing field. I know the first African American guys I ever really knew were the guys at Von Steuben. They were West Side kids, and I I think it, it's 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 it never occurred. It never occurred. There was just I think sports is a, a great way of sort of diffusing uh, diffusing races. <laughs>
Every year I celebrate Memorial Day by trying to see how much I can remember, um, as many around the country do. Um, and I've been training for it this year. I've been training for several months. I, I just broke out a brand new memory palace. I just bought this last week, and, it, and it's really been helping. I believe that I was able to remember a solid 24, 24 to 25 hours straight. Really? Solid memories. Yes. So uh, my, my brain, think of how much tape it would, it would take to, if you put it into a, to a recorder, a, to a, uh, a recorder, mm-hmm. how much tape it would take to record a solid 25 hours. Micro cassette or reel to reel? Reel to reel, obviously. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, no, that's good for you. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, I took the opposite sort of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I aspired to remember as little of as Memorial Day as possible. Um, okay. Through... As, as so, tip, typical Monday for you. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.